On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with Dr. Christine Marie Cocciola about coercive control, the neurosequential model, the psychological maltreatment of children, helping children regulate their emotions, and building ego resiliency. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. With me today, I have Dr. Christine Marie Cocciola. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me, Brandon. Well, thank you for being here. You've been a guest on our show before. We discussed subjugation. And for those of you that don't remember... Dr. Christine Marie Cocciola. She is a DSW and LCSW is a coercive control advocate, educator, researcher, and survivor. She is a college professor teaching social work in the CT college system for the last 20 years and is also an adjunct instructor at New York University. Her expertise is in the areas of intimate partner violence, trauma, and child abuse, developing and presenting workshops on these topics, both nationally and internationally. Christine is a board member of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and I really want to thank you for being here with us today. You're going to share a wealth of information with everyone listening about course of control, course of control with children, ego resiliency, and so much more. This episode is going to be uh, very useful for everyone, but especially parents, you know, when your child is coming back from a home uh, with a lot of dysregulation and, and, and trying to figure out how to best parent them, this episode is going to be very, very useful for all of you. So a big thank you, uh, Dr. Christine Cocciola, for being here. So let's, I guess, first start with um, defining coercive control for those that don't know uh, what that definition is. Absolutely. So coercive control, what's really important is a lot of people are hearing the word and they're saying, well, what's the difference between that and domestic violence and trying to figure all of that out? So first of all, I call it domestic abuse and not domestic violence because not all of the abuse is physically violent. Um, it doesn't mean it's not violent. It's just not physically violent. Um, and coercive control is the foundation of most domestic abuse. That's what we know now, which is just um, when we think about it, when you have to kind of wrap your mind around the fact that most abusers who abuse in intimate partner relationships do so because they need to have power and control over another human being. And so there's um, situational violence, which is separate. Some relationships are just based on maladaptive coping. Some people become angry physically and they act out their anger and frustration in a physical way. And it can be horrifying and it can be extremely harmful and people can go to the hospital. It might be both partners. It might be one partner. It may be after an episode of drinking or, you know, some kind of drug use, but that's not the same as need to have power and control over someone 
And that's what course of control is. It's a pattern of behavior that can happen overtly or covertly. It can be certainly always entails psychological abuse. It always entails gaslighting, manipulation, intimidation, perhaps isolation. It can be financial abuse and legal abuse. And of course, the most heartbreaking of all of that is when it's the use of the children as pawns. Because if I'm an abuser, the most important thing to me is that if you have figured out that you want to leave or if you have figured out that I am an abuser, I'm going to do whatever I can to hurt you. And the thing that would hurt you the most is to harm your children in some way or to harm your relationship with your children. So on your website, you have this great section about the psychological maltreatment of a child. So can you run down uh, that list, uh, the, the points that were on that list for everyone, and how they can be inflicted upon a child? Sure. And I just want to, I'm just going to quickly go back to Biderman, the Biderman report, which was done in the 1950s and 60s, which is really where the word coercive control originates. And when he did this report, he actually was um, researching POWs, American prisoners of war, and, and watching how after a period of time, they would align, this was during the Korean War, with Korean, um, with the Korean military and with the Chinese, the military who were Chinese, and how how eventually they were able to be coerced to, like you were saying, align with an abuser. And we know that this happens because sometimes aligning that connection, even though it's not safe, it may feel safe. And it feels better than being alone. It feels better than being isolated. And that's what happens with children is that sometimes the safest parent doesn't feel safest because the other one has more power or because the other one has has convinced them that the that the protective parent is not safe so um yeah i think and um so on my website i detail like the the research about psychological maltreatment and i i really appreciated this information when i found it because it really differentiated, first of all, the difference between when we use the words emotional and psychological, because something can be harmful to us emotionally. It can hurt our feelings. It can make us feel sad, but that's not the same as psychological. When something harms us psychologically, it not only harms our emotions and how we feel, but it actually harms our brain. And if we could reframe that when children live in these situations, they are experiencing a harm to their brain. And we call that psychological maltreatment, not abuse, because maltreatment encompasses abuse, which can be very overt. Like I call you stupid, that's overt, right? But it also can be covert. We can't see it. And so I think part of the, one of the biggest problems we have is that with CPS, Child Protective Services, it's so hard to prove this and then add in that you may have a parent who's a charlatan who pretends they're a great parent. They're not doing anything physically abusive to the child. They're not calling the child stupid. 
but they may be insidiously and covertly trying to get them. They're indoctrinating them, right? And that is a psychological maltreatment that we can't put our finger on. And by the way, is more harmful. We know this. Research shows us it causes more trauma than if the child had been slapped because you can't see it. It's this hidden abuse that victims always suffer in these circumstances because coercive control is often, often starts off non-physical at the very least um, and may remain non-physical. Unfortunately, sometimes when it becomes physical, it also becomes deadly. Um, it's more likely to become deadly. So um, Hart and Brasser talk about these tactics, these in, the way they inflict harm. These abusers inflict harm. It's rejecting, diminishing who people are as a human being, making a child feel unloved, unwanted, unimportant. We see this in family systems, especially when there is a scapegoat as a child. So think about how victims, of course, adult victims are treated. They're diminished. They're told they're unimportant. Um, their, their voice doesn't matter. What they do doesn't matter. Then add in that there might be a child in the home who is treated this way. Because oftentimes in the family system, there may be a primary adult victim scapegoat, but there may also be a child who is also a scapegoat. Isolating. So this is, um, I was just on the phone with, um, I was doing a session with a client before you and I got on the call and it, the other parent was not wanting the son to be the father. The abuser was not wanting the son to be with the mother's best friend and the mother, mother's best friend's children. Why? Because those people love that boy because those people are good for that boy. So how do I cut off anything that's going to help you developmentally. I don't know if you've ever heard my letter from the abuser, but I talk about that in the letter from the abuser um, because I don't want you to have positive parts in your life because that actually makes me not have as much control over you. The only way I can have control over you is if I strip away your autonomy, your ability to actually be who you really are. Ignoring you. I mean, this is like just being psychologically unavailable, you know, um, these are people, these abusers tend to be people that when their child is doing really well, a badge of honor for them, then they're happy, right? But if the child isn't, there's nothing useful because the child is literally just an object. I have to kind of stop for a moment and just say, these abusers do not love their children. They do not. So when you're, you know, as a parent, sometimes we want to protect our children and we say, oh, well, daddy loves you so much. Don't say that. That's not true. These people don't know how to love. So when you have a young child, you don't have to say daddy loves you. You can say, oh, daddy loves going to your games. You can say things like that. But it's so important that we don't gaslight our children. They've lived in a home where they've watched us regulate our behavior They've lived in a home where we pretended it wasn't as bad as it was, where we were running around trying to take care of everything so that the abuser wouldn't have to get upset. So it's so important that they hear the truth, but not by talking badly about the other parent. So um, terrorizing, creating fear. So these are, Emma Katz talks about this in her research study. It's the extreme where children are petrified of the um, abuser. And certainly that happens. Um, 
my experience has been with the clients I work with is that these abusers are so good at what they do that it feels terrifying. Children are fearful, but it's not overt enough that anyone else would even see it or know it. Um, Corrupting. Um, This is obviously corrupting the way you feel about your protective parent. That would be number one, right? Or exposing them to things that maybe aren't healthy for their age. So I have one client who often, um, she says her son will say racist things because father says racist things. So creating this, um, children obviously aren't born with prejudicial beliefs. They learn them. So creating that experience for the child that way. Um, and then degrading, you know, making someone feel a little bit, not just unwanted, but maybe just, oh, well, that's not a big deal. Just dismissal of things. So children, the way we create ego resiliency in children is by supporting their egos in a healthy way. And these abusers don't want their children to have healthy egos. Because if I have a healthy ego, then I will recognize who you are. So their goal is to create an ego that isn't resilient. It's compromised. I call it ego compromised. Um, Dr. Bruce Perry calls it that too. A lot of experts call it that. Ego compromised is healthier for me as an abuser because I can manipulate you more. I can, I can make you do what I want you to do. I can coercively persuade you to align with me. So I have a bunch of questions for you. And the first one was actually from me. And I've been reading about parenting styles. And there's a parenting style called the authoritarian parenting style. And I'm sure there is maybe a bit of a combination within that with the Disney dad type of style. And we're talking about a parenting style that may not uh, jive with what the healthy parent is is doing. So can you explain uh, that type of parenting style and how a healthy parent can combat against that specific type of style or um, a parent that might be actively working against them with some style uh, that is like that? I can't tell you how many moms who, when they, so first of all, when we think about um, the way that women in general are brought up in society about being, you know, you follow the rules you respect your elders. It's kind of like a patriarchal belief system. Again, not not man or woman bad, just in general, it's not necessarily healthy. And so what I have found over and over again with clients actually is that the there was an authoritarian family uh, style of parenting in the home, which is these are the rules. Don't ask questions. It's about respect and you do what I tell you to do, but that also these moms parent in a similar way, not all moms, but I've seen that where because of their own upbringing, right? They, you know, you know, 12 years Catholic school girl here, like your own upbringing, right? That that's how you behave in the home. So then you marry someone or you partner with someone who parents this way and you parent in a similar way, right? Unless you really have educated yourself um, and also recognize that 
children need, in order to create ego resiliency, children need to be able to have a voice. Okay, so they they need to know that they are heard versus children should be seen and not heard. Remember that saying? I'm aging myself a little bit right here, Brandon, but this idea that you just did what your parents told you to do and that was it. And you got on your knees at church and you asked God for forgiveness if you didn't do what your parents told you to do, right? You would be punished. And so really looking at how positive reinforcement works much better than negative reinforcement. But how do we, how do we as protective moms, especially if you grew up this way, by the way, how do you change your parenting style a little bit to authoritative? And authoritative rhymes with give. That's a really easy way to remember it. But that... If you have a child who is living in a home where they have had to regulate their behaviors, and research shows us this, by the way, I'm not just talking from clinical experience. Research shows us that children live in a highly regulated state in a home where there is a coercive controller. And because of that highly regulated state, they are easily dysregulated. They, their brain is immediately going to fire up when they are triggered. And so how do we create a space for them where they, and they don't feel empowered, by the way, so they are totally disempowered in an authoritarian household. So how do we empower them without entitling them? That's always a question, right? Because we we know the abuser, like you said, Disney dad, might be entitling them. We allow them the space for a voice. We also do something that is so important. So if I'm dysregulated and overwhelmed and flooded all of the time by anything, by a minute thing, right? Then what is the one thing you can give me that will help me regulate? And that is you can lend me calm. You, mom, who talks way too fast sometimes, uses her hands when she talks and tries to explain things and does a little bit of this kind of like, we need to do this. This has to get done right away. You, mom, need to take a step back. You need to take a deep breath and you need to begin to change the way you interact with your children. Your children have been told one thing by the abuser, many things by the abuser about you, and they know how you are. They have seen you dysregulated. They have seen you upset that the dishwasher's not emptied yet. They have seen you say, how come you're late today getting out to the car? They know that about you. How do you, how do you shift that so that you are calm in those moments? They're not expecting that and they need that to regulate. More than anything, they need you to lend them calm and a safe haven, a safe space for them to be, for them to say, I don't want to do the dishwasher now. Okay. Well, when would be a good time to do the dishwasher? Or, all right, you don't want to do the dishwasher now. Can you do it at five or at 530? You tell me. Now what I've done, it's simple. It's so simple. But we live in such a fast-paced world. We've been taught to adhere to rules, whether in the abusers, in the authoritarian home, in our own personal upbringing. I had that home. You had to do what your mom and dad told you to do. That's what you did. So how 
do I take a step back and say, okay, the dishwasher literally on a scale of one to 10, it's not that important. It can wait till 530. But I can show my child that I'm flexible, that I'm not going to have these strict requirements, that flexibility is healthy, that calm is healthy, that I can be calm. Do you see? It's like, it's almost like what I tell my moms all the time is that you are a trauma victim. Okay. I'm so sorry that happened. That shit is awful. Really bad. But I'm telling you, your kid's a trauma victim now. You, you have to, I know you will because you love them so much. You have to change. And I call it fake it till you make it because it, you may not, you may need to like, you may be so stressed out and dysregulated that it's really hard for you to perform for them, but I need you to act until it becomes natural. I need you to act calm, even if you're not calm, because that little baby of yours is so traumatized that that's exactly what they need from you. And then I'm getting ahead, but that continues to happen patterned over and over and over again. They feel safe with you. They will feel safe with you. So you're doing your best to help your children. And at the same time, how do you heal from abuse yourself when the abuse is ongoing due to the fact that the abuser is going to use the children against you or use the, or is going to contact you via the children to further it? And... Um, how do you deal when like the big event or the traumatic event is ongoing and is there like, and there's still a threat or the perceived threat of like an, an imminent danger? Yeah. So, um, this is so hard. I mean, <laughs> cause I don't know if there is, a, is there a right answer to this? Because, you know, I hear so many times when, when people get a non court ordered, um, they're like, we're using, I'm not going to say the name of, of the, uh, of the app, but we're going to use X app and that's going to fix everything, but it's not a court ordered thing. And you're thinking you're getting everything logged and it's going to take care of things. And the other person's going to fall into line, uh, when you're discussing you know, the kids, um, but they don't need to use that app. They can get a hold of you in a myriad of other ways, including, uh, the children. Um, and it's not something that is, uh, you don't want to give, I don't want to give people a false hope, <laughs> you know, when answering this question, but um, what's the best someone can do or hope for? Right. Right. So I'm going to be really clear here. I don't, I don't have the magic fairy. I mean, I wish, right. I had the magic wand. I don't know what, I mean, I would say, obviously safety is always first. Um, but one of the, if we start with what you first asked me, okay, you said to me, how do you heal from the trauma when you're living in it, right? Like whether, even if you're not living in the home anymore, you're still de- dealing with the post-separation abuse, right? And assuming that your children are in the middle of this, right? They're dealing with the crossfire in some way, even if they're not telling you, they're seeing it and knowing it. If you could help your child be healthier, I promise you that you will feel healthier. 
So it's almost like taking a leap. On the other side of the bridge, your child's going to be healthier. And I'm asking you to kind of take that leap over there because you're not healthy yet. But if you know your child's healthier, I know you're going to feel healthier. I know you're going to feel stronger. I know you're going to feel empowered. But if you don't try to, not that you wouldn't try, but if it's, if you're so stuck that you can't go through the motions of trying to help your child, then nothing's going to change. So I call it navigating the stormy seas of the coercive control, or you're out in the middle of the ocean, there's a big storm going on and you're on this life raft, right? And so, you know, your child's out there. If you know that your child is attached, you are going to feel the will to live through this stormy sea. But if you don't know your child is attached, it's going to be it's going to be so devastating for you. So I'm suggesting the more that we can take over and feel empowered and in control, the better we will be. Now, this abuser is going to do whatever he can to harm, right? And so what I say to people is you, you're beginning to understand his tactics. You know what they are. I want you to write them down. What is he going to say in the next text to you? I want you to be prepared in your head for what that text is going to say. And I want you to be ready for what your response or no response is going to be. Because so the brain is getting triggered every time he's reaching out to you, every time he's trying to harass you. You know the brain is getting triggered in those moments. So why not just write down his playbook? He's got a playbook. We all have the same story in some way or another. It may be different. There's variations to it, but we all have pretty much the same story. Write down his playbook. Be prepared for it, for him to say, you're a useless, no good mother. Why don't you get a job? You know he's going to say that. You know it's going to hurt your feelings. You know you're going to be triggered. Now what I want you to do is to be ready with a response. And again, that response might be to you and not to him. You don't have to respond to him. Is that it's about it's about being prepared, and this goes for with your children, because you know your kids come home, you expect them to say something bad about dinner. They're never satisfied with the dinner you make. Dad cooks so much better than you. You don't know how to cook. You're you know how come you made this for dinner? All right, so they're coming home. I want you to write down every single bad thing you think they're going to say when they walk in the door, and I want you to be ready with your response, not your reaction, not the triggered response. If you practice that over and over again, you're going to get better at it. And every time you're better at it, they're going to get healthier. And every time they get healthier, you feel empowered. Do you see? It's all related. This is what I used to do in a non-child situation with my therapist, which was, I'm about to go into this situation tomorrow. I know that these are the different possibilities or or what can be said. And we just worked on all of my rebuttals, (laughs) how I was going to respond. And we were thorough. Like, I, I mean, I was prepared probably just like someone, like a comedian who goes on stage, who's doing like crowd work. It was like, I'm ready for what anyone's going to say in this audience. And I'm going to have the proper quip right back to get the show key to continue to go and, and really be in a position of strength. 
and not let, you know, and it helps a lot when you're, um, that prepared. It's it just, it builds your confidence knowing when they're coming into the room that you're not even going into the room in a place where you, you feel like you're lower, you know, right. you're coming in at a place where like, Oh, I've, I've got this. And like even that? if you, and even if you don't have it that first time you go back and be like, you know, it's okay. I screwed up, but next time I know what to do. I, because sometimes you, you think you have it, and then you have that moment where, like, oh, I got thrown ten steps backwards, but your foundation has been built to go back in there and do it. Right, right. And so I want, I, I, I have like so a couple of caveats here that's so important, right? So you're prepped. You're prepped so your amygdala is not going to fire up in the same way. Your amygdala feels a little more protected. And that's really important. So going back to our children and you, I like to say, I hate to say it, but you have a broken brain after all that trauma. Your brain is broke. So if you had a broken leg, right, you wouldn't just run into physical therapy. You would gently begin to do physical therapy. Nobody, No one would expect you to do the 5K down the road because if you did, you'd harm it more, right? So really it's about baby steps and forgiving yourself when you make mistakes because you're going to make mistakes. But I implore you to work on becoming consistent with it. I want you to pretend you're on stage and you're acting. And so if you were acting in a play, you'd have to get it right after a couple times. I'm suggesting we're on stage and we have to act until we actually get it. And I would say this is a little bit tangential, but I think it might be related to a lot of your listeners. And I'm going to say the word, not all narcissists are coercive controllers, but all coercive controllers are narcissists. My feeling, my belief, 110%. And I believe as a, as I used, when I was um, a little bit younger, I used to do child sexual abuse trainings. Uh, for caretakers, foster care parents, et cetera. And all pedophiles are coercive controllers. Every single one of them, if you look at the grooming stages for child sexual abuse, it is exactly in line. It's the playbook piece by piece. And what I used to teach my, my participants about safety was that we need to start teaching our children at a really young age. And this applies to domestic abuse also. It it applies to relationships. At a super young age, we need to start talking about body parts with appropriate names and talk with them about where their bathing suit is. No one should ever touch unless it's the doctor and mommy's with you. So we begin role-playing at a very young age with them. What would happen if someone touched you here? We literally have that conversation with our children. People are like, oh my God, that's a frightening conversation. No, no, no. Listen, just like there's people who rob banks and there's people who maybe um, drink and drive, depending on their age, there are people who want to harm children. And mommy wants to make sure you're safe. And so we go through with our children role-playing what they would do if they were in that position. Now, the abuse may still happen, but they have a toolkit to pull from. If we don't give them a toolkit, they have nothing to pull from. And so going back to you in the kitchen, preparing for your, your children to come in the door, you have no toolkit. I'm suggesting you need a toolkit. You need to have that at the ready. You may not pull out the right tool. Okay. Next time, maybe you will. Same thing when we're teaching our children about how to be treated by others. No one should treat you that way. What would you do if someone told you that you were a bad kid? What would you do in that moment? 
role play with your child what they would do because guess what? When they're with the abuser, some of that shit is happening. Some of it's happening. How do we help them navigate those circumstances? So uh, we have another question here, which is what are the tools in a protective parent's toolbox to begin responding to their child in a way that helps their child regulate their emotions and become ego resilient? Okay. So I always say my protective moms, listen, you are your child's saving grace. You can show your child a path to freedom right now. A child in a home where they're going between your home and the abuser's home, or maybe you're still living with the abuser, they are living literally in the lion's den. How do we begin to show them a way out, right? And that really becomes um, part of us showing over and over again that we are the safe parent no matter what the abuser says. So number one, It's about being different than they expect us to be. I've already mentioned that, but it really is important that if you were the parent, and you may have been, who, when your child called you a name, think about an adolescent calling you a horrible name, right? And you started to cry a little bit and you got, you know, how could you call me that? You know, I don't know any children who call their mother that. That's horrible. Don't you feel bad? Don't you feel awful for calling me that? I mean, listen, those are some pretty normal responses that we might expect, right? That does not help a child who is ego compromised at all. So in that moment, when they call you that horrible name, your response can be, I really don't like getting called that name. I call it the rule of 2.1. I came up with this like rule of 2.1. You say it again, because they call you the name again. You know what? I really don't appreciate being called that name. Doesn't feel good. Now you're using I statements. So basically what I tell my protective moms is we have to become mini counselors in our home. I'm literally in the protective parenting program, giving people the skills of how to be counselors and look at your child from the view of, from the lens of a counselor, their therapist versus, by the way, a really well-equipped therapist, not some, not a therapist who doesn't get this, but not as the mom, because sometimes the things our children do are really painful. And so we can't respond in that way. We have to, we can't react in that way. We have to respond differently. So it's I statements. I feel or I wish this didn't happen. And it's refraining from you. When you are a child who is ego compromised, your ego, um, you are very defensive all of the time. And when I say you need to put away those dishes, or I can't believe you talk to me that way, we immediately put people on the defense. In the clinical world, we call it, he said, she heard. So somebody can say something to you, but then you hear in an entirely different way and not at all as they intended, right? It's the same idea. Your children are hearing you attacking them. That's what they're hearing. They're hearing they're not good enough because they didn't empty the dishwasher. They're hearing that you don't like them because you told them they're disrespectful. They're not hearing that was disrespectful. They're not able to cognitively process that because they're so dysregulated. Cognitive processing only occurs when we're regulated. Your kids are dysregulated 99% of the time. 
So are you going to really sit down and have a conversation with them about name calling being bad and get anywhere with it? No, you're not. So why bother? Use the 2.1 rule. Tell them once, I really don't appreciate being called that. Tell them a second time. Yeah, I really just, you know, again, not crying, calm. You're lending calm. I really, I really don't like that. I'd appreciate it if that doesn't happen again. And then they say it again and you say, I've already told you how I feel about that. And you walk away. Now, it's not run away. It's not, I'm leaving, slam the door. It's none of that. It is a peaceful, either getting food out of the fridge, a, a disengagement, a, a, a deflection of sorts. It's, uh, I need to take a shower. I have an appointment. You may not have an appointment. Lie. I give you permission to lie and get in the bathroom and take a freaking cold shower to regulate your nervous system. That's what we need to do. These are the things we need to do to help ourselves in these situations. So lending calm, using I statements, not you statements is really important. It's a shift in the way we think. I still sometimes, when I'm talking, use it. Um, It's uh, preparing for what they're going to say when they come home. Being ready, you almost know, and being different when they come home. If every time they come home, you're on your computer doing homework or whatever you're doing, you're doing work. Don't be on the computer, be laying on the couch reading a book. Be outside watering your flowers. Do something different. Create a different experience for them. That helps their brain see things differently. If you're doing the same thing all the time, they're not seeing anything differently. If you're telling them they're disrespectful all the time, it's not going to change it. So lower your expectations. Recognize they have a broken brain. They are abuse victims. Yes, he is abusing them. He has abused them, whether it was covertly or overtly since you've been with him. That is not your fault. There is no blame here. But recognize that their brain is broken and you can't fix it by saying, I'm going to explain it. That's that's cognitive processing. That's not going to happen. You can fix it by refraining from what we would call an injury to their ego. So I need you to pick up the clothes in the bedroom or I'd like the clothes picked up by five, please. Now the clothes aren't picked up because, you know, we all have these teenagers who aren't going to listen to us. They're not going to do it. No, I'm not doing it. Okay. I'd like the clothes picked up by five. And if they're not, if they're not picked up, I'm going to need to go in there and just put them in a bag. Okay. I'm just, I'm just letting you know. That's all. And then at five o'clock, go in there now. Some people say, yeah, what if they fight you, physically fight you? Okay. Then you leave the bag there and you walk away. And that is a fight you're not going to win. Do not engage in disagreements with these children who have been ego compromised that you know you cannot win. It's not worth it. Let it go. I can give you more, but that's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So... The next question we have on our list is how do you help a child who has been exposed to trauma and a course of controller? How do you help them build resilience? Yeah. So every single thing I've explained is the path to building resiliency. So if we think about the fact that their brains are broken and they've been so harmed, if we can create regulation in the home, 
a calm, safe place where they come home and they don't expect mom to say, how was dinner with dad? Or did you have a good time? Or, and you may be doing this totally, by the way, just benign, just trying to be engaging. But what, so I will use an example. I began to realize that every time I asked, how was your visit? How was, how was dinner with dad? That I was immediately getting a reaction. I couldn't mention dad. I realized I couldn't mention him, even though it was an authentic inquiry. I was trying to be just a mom in a normal circumstance. We can't be the moms that we intended to be in these relationships. We have to be different. So what is it, if you can get yourself attuned to what triggers your children and then be ready to not do that? The more you trigger them, the more their amygdala is firing up, the more their brain is not repairing. So we don't want to trigger them. That doesn't mean we don't discipline them. We don't have consequences. That's, you know, certainly has to happen. We don't, but we also don't want to continuously trigger them. So I recognized asking how dinner with dad was didn't work. But if I didn't ask as soon as she came home and I waited, because she's waiting for me to ask her questions. And I waited. And then maybe the next day said, oh, um, was it a nice, um, uh, did you like the restaurant you went to? That's different. And I figured out that she could handle that. So trying not to, what are their triggers? What are your triggers, right? What are their triggers? Everything that we have to do to make ourselves healthy, we have to do for them. And last question here for you. What is the neurosequential model? Yeah, Dr. Bruce Perry is my hero. <laughs> and he talks about the neurosequential model. Um, it's basically, so basically when trauma happens, um, when healthy children, right? Um, they are able to cognitively process things. They're not constantly being dysregulated. And uh, Dr. Perry uses this in schools. So it's meant to be used as uh, a tool for teachers to use to regulate their students. And what we know is that it's so important for people, for children who are dysregulated to have connections, to feel connected to other people in their lives, to have what I call protective parts. So what he talks about is that I can't cognitively process why it might be wrong to call you a name if I'm in dysregulated mode. So first things have to happen is I have to not be triggered as frequently. Second thing, and it's a layering effect and it needs to be repetitive, I need to feel affirmed in my relationship with you. I need to feel a connection with you. Now, if you're always mad at me because I'm always misbehaving, that doesn't work. So it's kind of that 9-10 rule that we use with toddlers is that, you know, we recognize nine good things and then we address maybe one bad thing a day. These are children who don't feel good about themselves. 
And so our ability to really focus on the pos- the strengths that they have and, and really hyper-focus on them is super important. Um, and, um, and helping them to regulate so that they can actually get there. So when your child is dysregulated and they've done something wrong, so they're having a temper, okay, a temper tantrum. That is not the time to teach them the lesson. Let's get them regulated. So they're having a temper tantrum, sit down on the floor, sit calmly. They might be hitting you, depending on their age. They might be kicking you. They're screaming. They're yelling. Your neighbors can hear them. I don't care. Sit there. Lend them calm. Eventually, they're going to realize maybe over the, again, so Depending on the age, the older a child is, the longer it is for them to learn this skill. That's why, you know, when babies are six months old and the doctor says, let them sleep through, let them cry, um, that, that occurs. If you don't let them cry at six months old, when, if you wait till they're a year, it's going to take two weeks for them to stop crying through the night. So we have to, we have to be patient in this process, but we have to help them regulate first. We have to, intentionally become connected to them, attuned with them and, um, and show them that we're safe and that we're available to them. And then maybe the next day we can bring up, Hey, yesterday I noticed you were really upset after school. Can we talk about that? No, I'm not going to talk about it. Okay. That's all right. But the most important thing that I would say about, cause I can't really talk about it in a short period of time. But the most important thing is that these children are not, if they are 15 years old and they have been abused, they are not 15 years old emotionally. They're more like an eight-year-old or maybe even a four-year-old. They might be having tantrums with you. We have to meet our children where they are emotionally. We cannot expect them if they can't regulate and and their, their cerebral cortex is not igniting in the way that it should, then we can't expect them to behave the way that they, that we want them to. We have to meet them where they are. So thank you so much, Dr. Christine Marie Cochiola for being here with us today and imparting so much knowledge for our community. Um, You are an amazing person and you currently have this uh, protective parenting program uh, offered on your website um, that I know is so valuable. So a really big thank you for imparting some of that knowledge upon uh, our community again today. I can't thank you enough. So before we go today, um, tell everyone uh, what you are going to be up to and other things that you're working on. Yeah, so I'm going to be um, uploading um, another program. It's going to be for adolescents and young adults about healthy relationships. So it's a, it's an educational webinar. It's going to be about an hour and a half long. And um, and there's um, Where Is Your Line, which is about healthy relationships and the red flags and the things to look for. Um, and it's uh, the, the other webinar is Consent 101, because every child, every young person needs to be equipped in understanding that only yes means yes in relationships. And uh, the other one is unpacking gender oppression and understanding why gender oppression impacts all of us, men, women, boys, girls. And um, I would uh, 
tell all of your listeners to please uh, reach out to your senators and representatives, uh, certainly for coercive control legislation, certainly for legislation that protects children. Um, uh, VAWA with Caden's Law is about creating legislation in every state that would protect children from having to go home with an abuser, which is so important, but also that the ERA needs to be ratified to include women. And it has not been, and it should be because um, women also suffer oppression, just like, just like men, just like people from other races and just like the disabled and everybody else is included in the ERA, but women are not. So uh, thank you once again, Dr. Christine Marie Cochiola for being a guest on our show today and all of her information, everyone will be in our show notes as well. And if you want to be a guest on our survivor story episodes, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says guest form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our guest form page. There's all of these instructions. So please do read all of the instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our submit form page, press the submit button, and please send us everything in the format that we ask for on that guest form page. And if you need support, we have our very own safe social network. It's a support group. We have Zoom meetings in there every Wednesday night. Saturday night and Thursday afternoon. We also have episodes that never made it to air on there. We have ad-free episodes and we have forum boards for you to post on and for people to support you. Peer support group in there. And it is a wonderful group of people. And if you need even more support, please do go visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. And at domesticshelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of things. They have phone numbers and websites to abuse agencies and shelters. So please do go visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. And that is it for our show today. So from me and Dr. Christine Marie Cochiola, we hope you have a good night.